tell from the uh, sermon passage reading, you picked a fun one to come and, and visit with us this morning. So, uh, yeah, really looking forward to it. Just, you know, a word of introduction here is I'm going to say that uh, we might cover some stuff this morning that might make you feel uncomfortable, and that's okay. That's good. It's actually totally fine for the Word of God to make you uncomfortable sometimes. Uh, we need that. Very often, we need that. So uh, another thing is, I hope you don't take the approach of, well, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not a kid anymore. I, I want to assure you, this either does apply to you now, has applied to you at some point, it's going to apply to you uh, probably at some point in the future. So this is a word for everybody this morning, and we need to receive it that way. Because we're in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, which is arguably the most practical section of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus is covering issues and topics that we deal with all the time throughout life. Like anger, which we talked about last week, right? And now we come to this fun subject, which we're going to cover today. And as I was studying this... It made me think about the Odyssey. I don't know if you've ever read that story or or if you're familiar with it, but it's basically tracking Odysseus after he leaves the Trojan War at its conclusion, and he's going home. And at one of the most uh, famous sections of that book, Odysseus and his men, they're on a ship, they're sailing home, and they hear what sounds like the most beautiful song they have ever heard in their lives. And it's the siren song, right? And the sirens are seductive, and they sing this beautiful song that that sailors can't resist. But the problem is, when sailors actually uh, follow that song, uh, it is deadly. Sailors are enticed by it, they steer their ships towards it, and they're lured in to their death as they crash their boats into the rocks. And if you read that story, you know that the siren's song gets a picture of temptation, right? We are not tempted by things that are ugly and grotesque and we have no interest in. We're tempted by beautiful things. We're we're tempted by things that are alluring and they call to us and they draw us in. But we need to remember that there are things in this life that draw us in with a promise that is not only empty, but which will lead to our demise and the shipwrecking of our lives. It's an issue that we have to take very seriously. And I, I want us to be aware this morning that there are often sirens near kingdom waters. That the people of God, as we are the kingdom of God, there are going to be constant and real dangers always surrounding us, seeking to lure us in with these empty promises that will lead to our demise. And one of the most common siren songs in our world today is the siren song of lust and sexual gratification. And we hear that song constantly in our world today, do we not? I mean, we see what's on TV and in movies, we get the advertisements in the mail and, uh, and through our email. We see how people dress today and we realize that we are constantly surrounded by these never-ending enticements that are, that are calling out to us, trying to draw us in. And if we're not careful, and if we don't take this issue seriously, we're going to wreck our lives. And so Jesus is saying that we're in this section. He says, you must be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees if you have, if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Because unless you are more righteous than them, you're not getting in. So what does it look like to be more righteous than them with regard to lust? Or another way to ask that is, how can truly righteous people avoid being lured by lust? 
That's a question we want to consider this morning because we're surrounded by it constantly. Where It's always around us. And so how can truly righteous people avoid being lured by lust? And this is what Jesus has to say on it. Verses 27 through 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you were here last week, you remember we were talking about that one of the things, one of the main problems with the teaching of the religious leaders is that they had a tendency to reduce the law down to its simplest meaning, right? They just reduce it down to its simplest meaning to their ability to keep it so that they can pat themselves on the back and call themselves righteous law keepers. And, and you see they have that same approach here, right? God says, you shall not commit adultery. And they said, okay, we will not engage in any form of sexual interaction with someone who's not our spouse. Done. We've kept that law. Give us another one. We're righteous. We're law keepers. This is easy. If only it was so easy, right? (laughs) They didn't give it any further thought. God says, don't commit adultery. And they say, okay, fine. We won't commit the physical act of adultery. And it made it very easy for them to feel good about themselves. But notice what else it did. It also gave them the ability to easily condemn other people, which the Pharisees like to do a lot. Because if someone was found to be an adulterer or an adulteress, and that relationship was found out, well, that was a very public thing, wasn't it? Especially in a small village. It was very public. And so what the Pharisees could do is they could point the finger at those people and say, you're sinners, You're unrighteous. You deserve death for your sins. It's really easy to condemn such a public, invisible sin. But it's not so easy to see the heart, is it? And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Satan wants us to focus all of our attention on not committing the outward fruit of adultery. But Jesus says, I'm concerned about the root of adultery that's already in your hearts. And if we're not careful about realizing the difference between the two, we're going to turn into hypocrites, just like the Pharisees. We'll think ourselves righteous law keepers so long as we don't go through with the outward physical act, but we'll ignore the sin and the lust that's already in our hearts, won't we? I mean, there's a great example of this recently. You might have seen this story, but there's a recent story about a uh, female cop. Many of you already know where I'm going with this, right? Very famous story recently, a female cop who was married was found out to basically be having an affair with like all of her department, (laughs) pretty much like half her co-workers or more. She was sleeping with them and this adulterous affair was exposed and it was very public. And and so when it broke, the news story broke, many people were condemning her and like her adulterous acts. And I think rightly so, they were angered by her affair and affairs based on how many there were going on. But what got me is that when this story broke, there were so many men who were condemning her, calling her, you're an adulteress. You've done this. This is wrong. This is sinful. You know, you deserve to be punished. You're a terrible person. And those same men who were condemning her, were looking at pictures of women online, lustfully. Those exact same men were flirting with their female co-workers. And they were entertaining second glances. Many of them were nursing a porn addiction, and yet they had the audacity to condemn her. She's a sinner. She's an adulteress. Meanwhile, they're ignoring their own hearts. 
Do you see the difference here between the outward act that's easy to condemn and the heart, which is a lot harder to see and condemn? You know, God says here, you shall not commit adultery. And we think, I would never do that. I'm not a perfect person, but I would never do that. We like to think ourselves innocent and respectable so long as our hands are clean. But here's my question to you this morning, church. What about our hearts? You might have clean hands this morning. But Jesus says, I'm concerned about your heart. Is your heart clean? And I think the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones are really relevant at this point. This is what he said. He said, there are highly respectable men and women who would never dream of committing an act of adultery. But look at the way in which they enjoy sinning in the mind and the imagination. That cuts, doesn't it? (laughs) I want you to understand this morning that sin is sinful from the start, not just when it can be seen by others. And that's an important point that we need to understand. Sin is sinful from the start, not just when it can be seen by others. I mean, should we really think that, that, just, that sin isn't that serious or deadly just because it's not visible? We would never take that approach with anything else in life, would we? I mean, imagine that you went to the doctor. And he's running a bunch of tests on you. And then the doctor comes back and he goes, hey, um, I've got good news and bad news. Which one do you want first? And you're like, well, I'm a pessimist. So give me the bad news first. Let's just get that out of the way. And he goes, okay, well, here's the bad news. You've got terminal cancer. And you're like, oh, man, that is bad news. But you said there was good news. So so what's the good news? He goes, well, that's the best part. (laughs) Don't worry about it because you don't have any visible symptoms yet. Would anybody in here go, what are you talking about? Like, that's amazing news. Praise God for that. This is a great, no, nobody in here would respond that way. You'd be like, what do I care if I have no visible symptoms or not? I still have terminal cancer. It's going to kill me either way. You would understand immediately that cancer is just as deadly and just as serious whether you have visible symptoms or not. Right, church? Terminal cancer is terminal cancer. And that's Jesus' point here. He's saying sin is sin. And it's just as serious and it's just as deadly whether it's visible or not. Jesus is warning us about the danger of sin. He says once it takes root in the heart, it's going to begin to produce fruit in the world. And so I want us to understand this morning that inward desires lead to outward actions. This is why you have to nip this in the bud real quick. This is why you have to take this seriously while it's still in the heart. Because inward desires lead directly to outward actions. And there are too many good examples of this to, to go over. But I, I think of one that comes to my mind is uh, the notorious serial killer, Ted Bundy. Everybody familiar with him? Yeah, I would assume so. Uh, when I was growing up, I thought, I never thought I was going to be a preacher or a pastor. <laughs> never once crossed my mind. I thought I was going to be the next Sherlock Holmes. So I did what every normal kid does. I read a bunch of books on serial killers and stuff like that. It's normal. Okay, don't judge me. There's nothing weird about that. All right. So I was just in my room alone reading about serial killers. It's fine. Okay, we're good. So that's what I was doing. And I remember distinctly listening to the last interview that Ted Bundy gave before his execution. And what was really telling about it is he said he was absolutely positive that he was not born the way that he was. He said he was absolutely positive he was made that way. You see, he he actually came from a Christian family, a very loving Christian family. And he said that he knew he was made the way he became, and he traced his origin. 
He said when he was young, about the age of 12 or 13, he was exposed to pornography for the first time. And it was very mild at first, but what happened? The inward desires began to grow, and it began to consume him. And so he started looking at more uh, explicit types and, and more hardcore types, and eventually it got to the point where he was looking at violent types of pornography. And he said his desires within him were so consumed and his imaginations were running wild so much that he literally could not keep it in anymore. He said his desires had been fueled by that so much that he felt he literally had to act upon his desires. There was nothing he could do to keep it inside. And that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about here. Your inward desires, they lead directly to outward desires actions. And that's why we can't afford to take this lightly or downplay it. Sin has to be dealt with and we can't wait. We can't afford to wait until those sinful desires blossom in to sinful actions. We have to address them while they're still in the heart. Right, church? We can't afford to just ignore them because if we don't, here's what's going to happen. If you just allow those desires to continue in your heart, the next step is you're going to start entertaining ideas. And you know what this is like. Every teenager or young adult has probably gone through this at some point in their lives, right? Every teenager in a relationship will begin to wonder about these ideas. They'll start entertaining them. They'll start asking questions like, well, can I do this or that with my boyfriend or girlfriend and it not actually be a sin? They start wondering, well, how far is too far? They want to know where the line is. Why do do they want to know where the line is? Because you want to flirt with the line, right? I want to know where it is. So that I don't cross it, but I want to get as close to that line as I possibly can. So how far is too far? They start wondering, well, what's actually possible to get away with without it being a sin? That's inward desires, wondering how far can I take this? What are the possibilities? And before we start nodding our heads and and feeling good about ourselves, looking down on all the teenagers, please understand, this doesn't go away as an adult, right? Like uh, teens, I don't know if you need to hear this, but that doesn't go away as an adult. There are still adults today who are wondering, what can I get away with? How far is too far? There are still adults today who are lusting after people who are not their spouses. And and there's another one with married people today. There are many married people today who begin to ask very similar questions to the teenagers. And they begin to ask, is it a sin if I'm alone with someone of the opposite sex who's not my spouse? Is that really that bad? Is that a sin? Can I be best friends with someone of the opposite sex who's not my spouse? Can we text each other? Can we call each other? Can we go out to eat together? Here's one that they always think in the media is totally fine. Can we look but not touch? They're asking the exact same questions as the teenager, just, you know, in their own context as adults now, what they're wondering is, what is possible? What can I get away with? They're trying to allow those inward desires to to just run wild with imagination. And what I want to warn you about this morning is this. If you obsess over possibilities, you'll begin to look for opportunities. If you obsess over possibilities, you'll begin to look for opportunities. One of the greatest theologians of the 20th century was a man named R.C. Sproul. And uh, he had a son named R.C. Sproul Jr. And his son seemed destined to follow in his father's footsteps. And in many ways he did. And for many years he did as well. 
Except today, R.C. Sproul Jr. has fallen from grace, he's lost his entire ministry, and he will probably never have any ministry opportunities again. Because, in a data breach, it was discovered that he had visited an adultery matchmaking website. Notice this, it was not just your your normal dating website, it wasn't just a, a website for singles or anything. He specifically sought out an adultery matchmaking website, a website tailored for people who are wanting to embark on an adulterous affair, and he went there and he signed up and it was found out through a data breach. And in a blog he explained what happened, and I think his words are really telling. He said, in a moment of weakness and pain... And from an unhealthy curiosity, my goal was not to gather research for critical commentary, but listen, to fan the flames of my imagination. That's exactly what I'm talking about here. If you begin to obsess over possibilities, if you have an unhealthy curiosity, if you allow your imagination to run wild, it is only a matter of time before you begin to look for opportunities. And if you take the approach of asking, is it okay, rather than what does God say, you're going to look for those opportunities and you're going to justify every sinful action you take. And this is why sin is so dangerous. This is exactly how inward desires lead to outward actions. So if you're not uncomfortable yet, I'm about to make you uncomfortable. Let's do it together. We're going to get really direct. Men, you listen to me, men? Your eyes are for your wife, period. No one else. Keep your eyes on your wife. Your eyes are for your wife, period. You are to love your wife as Jesus loves the church and gave himself up for the church. You would never find Jesus looking at someone else. He has a bride and he loves his bride. You're to imitate that love, men. To love your wife as Christ loves the church. Don't go looking for strange flesh that has no business being part of your relationship at all. You might not be responsible for that first glance, but you are responsible for every single glance after that. So here's what you do. Keep your eyes on your wife. Love your wife, men. Pursue your wife. Lead your wife. Serve your wife. Sacrifice for your wife. Prioritize your wife. Give yourself to your wife entirely, and you will have nothing left to give to anyone else. The Bible says in Proverbs 5.18, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice in her. Love her. Take pride in her. Treasure her. Oh, but pastor... She's not the same woman I married all those years ago. Have y'all heard that one? Oh, familiar, huh? Pastor, she's not the same woman I married all those years ago. She's changed. So? Do you think you're the same person she married all those years ago? No. Understand this, the Bible doesn't say love your wife and remain married to your wife so long as she never changes and stays exactly how she was the day that you married her. The Bible says love your wife as Christ loves the church. It's really that simple. Nobody is going to stay the same throughout life, are they? Nobody's going to stay the same. You're going to age. You're not going to retain that that youthful physique forever. You're not going to maintain that full, thick, dark, luscious hair forever, unfortunately, (laughs) as much as we all wish. One day I'm going to be bald, and it'll be fine. It's okay. We're fine. 
you're going to change, right? It's going to happen. That's what happens in life. So listen to me, men. All right. I want you to hear me say this. One of the best things that you can do for your relationship with your wife is you learn to love her and appreciate her at every new stage of your relationship. Before kids, after kids, when the kids move out and you're home alone, learn to love and appreciate your wife at every new stage of your relationship. If you do that, I'm telling you, you will have a strong and secure marriage. Because listen to me, beauty and sexual attraction, they might be important, but they are terrible foundations for marriage. Those things fade with time. The foundation for your marriage better be something sturdier and more long-lasting than that. The foundation for your marriage, your marriage must be founded upon your covenant commitment to each other and to God. That just as God committed to us, and just as God gave Himself to us and has promised never to leave us or forsake us, listen to me, even though we change all the time, right? And even though we're far from perfect, God has covenanted with us never to leave us or forsake us. So men, we covenant to commit ourselves to our wives and never leave her or forsake her. We're committing and vowing to have a marriage that serves as a visual reminder and representation of the gospel. You know that's the purpose for your marriage, right? I tell people that all the time in premarital counseling. Your marriage is supposed to be a visible display of the gospel. They're supposed to look at your marriage and see Jesus' love for the church, His bride. This is the foundation we need for marriage. And if we commit ourselves to having that mindset, it's going to keep our minds off everything else. Amen? Amen. So let's get even more uncomfortable. okay? Because at this point, people will go, well, this is why I can't be a Christian. Christians are prudes. Christians hate sex. They're opposed to it. That's not the case at all. That's completely unbiblical, right? You have to understand that every sin is just a corruption of something good that God gave us, right? That's what sin is. It's a corruption of something good. It's taking something good and usually engaging in it in a way or at a time that goes against God's design for that good gift. And so God gave humanity sex as a good gift to be enjoyed within the context of one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage. That's the good gift in the proper way and in the proper context. And so every sexual sin is not a sin because it involves sex. It's a sin because it involves a corruption of God's good design and intent for sex. So here's what that means. It means that homosexuality is not a sin because it involves sex, but because it's against God's design and intent for sex. We're talking about adultery this morning. Adultery is not a sin because it involves sex. It's a sin because it involves a corruption of God's good design and intent for sex. This applies to literally every form of sexual sin. Here's what I want you to understand this morning. God wants us to enjoy His good gifts, but He wants us to enjoy them in the proper context according to His good design. And here's here's what I want to tell you. If you engage in a corruption of one of those good gifts, if you engage specifically in one of these forms of, of sexual sin, you can expect the effects of sin to be present with you. If you're going to engage in the, in the good gift, but in a corrupted manner, you can expect sin's going to be right there next to you and heavily involved. You won't have lasting satisfaction. You're going to have regret and guilt. You won't have pleasure and happiness. You'll have pain and baggage. You 
won't be a true companion to someone in the covenant of marriage, you're going to be an object. If you engage in a corruption, you expect sin to be present. And I want you to understand this morning, God has more for you than a corruption of His good gifts. God wants more for you than a corruption of His good gifts. He isn't trying to withhold something from you. He's trying to keep you from settling for less than He has for you. That's the God we serve. He says, listen, I'm not trying to keep something good from you. I just don't want you to settle for something less. I have something even greater for you. I have something better for you. Don't settle. Go according to my design and my plan. And I need us to understand also that even though this word lust here, it does primarily have a sexual connotation. At the end of the day, it just means a a very strong desire towards something, an unhealthy type desire towards something. And so uh, what that means is it's not always about looks and sex. I want to tell you this morning, it's equally wrong to desire or to lust after the qualities of someone else's spouse or another person. I don't know if this is going to apply more to the, to the ladies, might still apply a lot to the men, but let me, let me just show you what this looks like. It's incredibly dangerous to begin to entertain ideas that sound like this. I wish my husband was more like Jane's husband. I wish my husband appreciated me like Jane's husband appreciates her. I wish my husband led me spiritually like Jane's husband leads her spiritually. I wish my husband did this and did that just like Jane's husband. That's an incredibly dangerous Uh, thought process to begin having because you're actually turning Jane's husband into an object of your lust and you're no longer desiring your own husband you're desiring her husband at that point that is a form of lust and let me tell you it has absolutely no place in your marriage it will destroy your marriage so men listen to me you should never desire your wife to be like another woman And ladies, you should never desire your husband to be like another man. You should desire for your spouse to be like Christ and nobody else. That is what you should desire for your marriage. I want my spouse to be like Jesus. And so if you've grown discontent with your marriage and you have found yourself lusting after someone, whether sexually or or like we just talked about with desiring the qualities of someone else's uh, spouse, here's what you can do. Best thing you can do for your marriage. Pray. Do you pray for your spouse daily? You know you should, right? Pray for your spouse daily. Pray that they would begin to love you as Christ loves the church. Pray that God would make them into the kind of man or woman of God that they are supposed to be. Pray that they would begin to lead you spiritually. Pray that they would be imitators of Christ. And here's what I want to tell you. When you begin to do that, you might just find that you need to pray the same for yourself, right? That maybe you're not so great like you thought you were. And maybe your spouse isn't actually the problem. Might be me, right? And so then you begin to pray that God would change you and make you into the person that you're supposed to be. Pray that God would make you the spouse that you need to be for your spouse. Pray that God would help you to be the man or woman of God that you are called to be. Pray, folks, that your spouse and that you would be like Jesus. 
You pray that for your marriage, and I promise you, it'll strengthen it. And Jesus wants us to understand how serious we need to be about this sin that is rooted in our hearts. Because look at what he says in verses 29 through 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that the whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. You see how serious Jesus is about sin here, right? He's saying, listen, if, you're, if your hand causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin, you should be willing to get rid of them, to, to throw them out, because it's better that you lose one of them than you actually go to hell. And I'm going to answer the question we're all wondering right now. You don't even have to submit it to the new podcast. I'll do it now, okay? The answer is no. You don't have to actually pluck out your eye or cut off your hand, okay? So... Put the knives away. You don't have to do that. It's, it is metaphorical here, symbolic. But Jesus, he's wanting us to understand, listen, that dangerous sins require drastic measures, right? Dangerous sins, the sin that's in our heart that is dangerous and can produce these outward actions that will just shipwreck our lives entirely. Dangerous sins require drastic measures like plucking out your eye, cutting off your hand. He wants us to get serious about sin because too many Christians today, what do we do? We play around with it, don't we? We entertain it. We don't treat it seriously at all. We treat sin as though it's no big deal. Christians sit back and put up no fight at all. And this is one of the worst things you could possibly do. Christians are called to wage war on sin. We're supposed to kill the indwelling sin that remains in us. My favorite theologian of all time said it best, John Owen. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So listen to me, church, we need a battle plan, right? If we're in this ongoing war with sin, we need a battle plan. We need to put safeguards in our lives to help keep us from sin. We've got to set up boundaries and cut off sources of temptations. One of the best things you can do for your life is get humble and go to someone and confess. And go to other people in your life who can hold you accountable and you just tell them, hey, listen, I'm struggling in this area. I need you to come alongside me and walk through this with me and hold me accountable. That's what discipleship looks like, right? That's what being Christian family looks like, is being willing to hold others accountable. I'll tell you right now, I've got two of my very best friends who have reached out to me, uh, individual of each other, and they've, they've told me, hey man, I'm struggling with lust, I'm struggling with pornography, I need help. And so what we did is we downloaded apps on our phones where I see everything they do on their phone. I know every web page they visit. I know how long they stay there. I know what pictures they look at. I can't see it. They are blurred, okay? Uh, I get reports of everything on their phone. And I was so proud of them because it took so much humility for them to come and say, I need help. But they understood how serious sin was. Do you see that? They knew that sin in their hearts was dangerous and that it was deadly. And they said, I need help. I can't do this alone. I need you to walk alongside of me. Christian, you need to be willing to do the same. Whether you need to be the one to walk along someone else and help them, or whether you need to finally deal with the sin in your heart and confess that today and get rid of that today and go to someone and say, I need help. I'm struggling and I'm afraid if I don't do something about this desire now, it's going to result in some sort of outward action. 
You need to be willing to go to someone else and ask for help. Do you see why it's so hard to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees? Don't you wish it wasn't that hard? Like, if this was simply, don't commit adultery, and all that meant was, don't have a sexual interaction with someone who's not your spouse, I feel pretty confident that, like, probably 95% of us could do that, right? Yeah, you feel pretty confident you could do that? But Jesus has to take it to the heart. (laughs) He always does that. And when he takes it to the heart and he says that we can't even entertain lustful thoughts, that we can't entertain imaginations, that we can't take second glances and act like it's no big deal, that we can't fantasize, that we can't wonder about possibilities or else we are guilty of adultery as well, well then that's a different story, isn't it? That's much harder. And that probably does away with that 90 to 95% of us in this room who could have kept it the other way, right? I don't think anyone has a clean heart when Jesus says, that's what this means. And so we ask that question again. What do we do? How can truly righteous people avoid being lured by lust? And here's what I want you to see this morning. In order to avoid being lured by lust, we must listen to a sweeter song. We must listen to a sweeter song. Thinking back to the Odyssey, when when Odysseus and his men, when they were sailing by the sirens, Odysseus did not trust himself not to give in to their song. And so he had his men tie him to the ship, and he told them, no matter how much I beg, no matter how much I cry or plead, do not untie me. And then he turned to his men, and he had them put beeswax in their ears so that they could not even hear the siren song. Listen, that's a legitimate way to fight temptation, right? That's putting up safeguards. That's cutting out sources of temptation. That's having people come into your lives to help you and walk alongside of you. That's legitimate. But I think there's an even better way to fight temptation. And it was the approach of the Argonauts. If you remember, the Argonauts, when they passed by those exact same sirens, they did not tie themselves to the ship. And they did not put beeswax in their ears. Instead, they had Orpheus get out his lyre, and he played a louder, sweeter, more beautiful song than that of the sirens. And because they thought his song was sweeter and more beautiful, they were able to resist the temptation of the sirens. They weren't drawn to that song at all. And here's what I want to tell you this morning, church. We have a louder, sweeter song that we need to tune our ears to and listen to this morning. We have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the promises of God. And if we would only listen to those songs and tune our ears to those songs, we would be so enthralled and amazed and in all of what God has done in Christ, nothing else could possibly draw us away. We would just be captivated by the song of the gospel. See, church, God has so much more for us than these cheap temptations and these corruptions of His good gifts. And that's what these things are. Pornography and sexually explicit material are nothing more than cheap, unsatisfying knockoffs. Hookup culture and adulterous temptations cannot provide you with lasting satisfaction. All of these siren songs fail to provide you with the promises that they make you to draw you in. And if you act upon them, Here's what's going to happen. They're going to leave you feeling dirty and guilty. They're going to leave you feeling used, full of shame, and empty. And if that describes you this morning, 
And if you have fallen for these siren songs time and time and time again, there's something else I want to tell you this morning, and I really want you to hear me. You are not damaged goods in the eyes of God. That might be your story up to this point. You might have fallen for every siren song you've ever heard. You might have engaged in every form of sexual corruption there is. You are not damaged goods in the eyes of God. There's a louder, sweeter song this morning. Listen to me. You are not worthless because someone treated you as though you have no worth. You are not worthless because someone made you feel as though you have no worth. That is not the case this morning. The shame that you might feel, the guilt that you are carrying around with you this morning, they are not too much for God. And praise God for that. You have not been disqualified from entering into the kingdom of God and being saved eternally by Christ just because you have sin in your past. Here's the good news for you. Everybody who comes to Jesus must come being a sinner. He calls the sinners to Him, not the righteous. He doesn't say, hey, as long as you're clean, as long as you've never messed up, as long as you've been good your whole life, you can come. He says, no, bring me the dirty ones. Bring me the failures. Bring me the ones who make mistake after mistake after mistake. Come to me. That's the call of Christ this morning that we need to tune our ears to. A sweeter song, a song that sings of the promise of forgiveness in Christ. A song that sings of the promise of renewal in Christ. A song that sings of the promise of wholeness in Christ. Even if we have spent our entire lives up to this point chasing siren songs and entertaining impure imaginations, even if we have acted upon our inward desires, and even if you feel like you have completely shipwrecked your life this morning, Jesus still says, come to me. Come to me and I will clean you up. You don't even have to do it yourself. You don't have to get yourself right and then come. Just come to me as you are. I will clean you up. Come to me and I will make you new. Come to me and I will restore you. Come to me today and find the life that I intended for you. That's a good song to listen to, is it not? One day, church, there are going to be no sirens left. And praise God for that. And we say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. But until that day, I have to warn you, there are going to be sirens near kingdom waters. They're going to always be within earshot, always calling out to us, always trying to get us to come to them to destroy our lives. But praise God this morning that we have a louder, sweeter song we can listen to. So let us focus on Jesus and His gospel. Let us tune our ears to the promises of God and long for them to be fulfilled in our lives. And let us no longer settle for anything less than the fullness of what God has for us in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.